This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Matt's Blamed. I'm Matt Armitage and I'm in the studio with uh, Richard Bradbury, virtually at least. We'll get to why I'm doing the intro this week in a little while, but uh, first we have lots and lots of AI stuff this week. Uh, most of it is, you know, pretty cool. It's only a little bit scary. And I promise not to use the M word on today's show or mention any of the companies that related to him. But first, we'll start with something human. So I'm going to ask you a question. How do you like your liver? It's okay. I didn't expect a response. You know, most of us don't really give the liver a lot of thought because why would we? It's not like we hang out with our lungs. Admittedly, I talk to my brain a lot, but that's kind of because somebody else has been squatting in it for uh, quite some time. But like most people, I don't pay much attention to my liver. And that's probably wrong because livers are amazing things. Not that the other organs are slacking, but you know, when was the last time your heart took the day off? Not only do livers clean toxins out of our blood, they help to create and balance nutrients. And if I've remembered this right, the liver is the only organ that's capable of self-regenerating. Our livers take a lot of punishment and they just keep coming back for more. So according to the new scientist, a new study from the US suggests that those livers are actually even hardier than we thought they were. And the findings of the study may actually change the way liver transplants are conducted in the future. So if you needed a liver, what kind of liver would you ask for? Now, Richard's shrugging his shoulders at me. I'll explain why later. He's indicating that if he needed a liver, he'd probably want a young one. And I get that because neither of us is exactly a spring chicken. But it turns out that young livers might not be the best choice. And I am self-aware enough to know that I kind of sound like a vampire saying this stuff. But this is a study from the University of Texas Southwest Medical Center, which found that transplanted livers can keep working for over 100 years. Now, the first thing that that made me think about was, how do they know that transplanted livers can last for 100 years? Because surely we haven't been doing transplants for that long. And if we had, wouldn't that mean that most of the patients die before they reach 100 years old? But if that's the case, does that mean they take the livers and keep them alive in some kind of weird lab? I, I mean, I told you I was sounding a bit like a vampire. But, you know, would you believe it? I was overthinking it. Yes, Richard, I was. What they actually looked at was the age of the liver when it was transplanted. So I had this image of the liver being transplanted and then lasting for 100 years, effectively making the transplantee, you know, not quite, but almost immortal. But what they were actually doing was looking at the age of the liver when it was transplanted. And then they were looking at what age the recipient lived to. 
And in many cases, the liver survived more than 100 years. So, for example, if the donor was 80 and the recipient lived for 25 years, then the organ is 105 years old. So that's just basic maths that for some reason my brain wasn't doing. But that brings us back to that question that I asked Richard about, which is whether he would prefer an older or younger liver. Now, in general, transplant organs are thought to be more viable when they come from a younger rather than an older donor. And that makes sense. You know, we know that our time, uh, our bodies rather, have a time limit on them. So it would make sense that an organ from a younger donor would give the recipient the better or the best chance of a long life. But in the case of the liver, something approaching the converse might actually be true. Look, I, I can tell from Richard's expression that all of this is a bit hard to believe. The Texan team analyzed data from over 250,000 liver transplants between 1990 and 2022. They found that 25 livers had lasted over 100 years, with 14 of them still inside living recipients. The oldest liver was found to be 108 years old. So, Obviously, I know that 25 out of 250,000, that's not a huge number. It's not even a statistical error. But what they found was that the longest living livers came from older patients when they were donated. In their data, they found that the average age of the donors of the long-lasting livers was 84 at the time they passed away, while donors of the livers that didn't reach the centenary were on average 38 years old when they passed away. So you're probably wondering why, and I'm going to paraphrase here. The research found that the donors of livers that uh, survived beyond 100 years had lower levels of uh, blood enzymes called transaminases which are associated with inflammation and liver damage. However, when the researchers ran these findings through the mathematical models that transplant doctors use to uh, help determine uh, whether uh, organs are suitable for transplant, they found that the longevity of these livers wasn't accounted for within the data parameters of their model. So based on the, the data inputs, these livers were exceeding expectations. So we have one of those situations of known unknowns that we now have to locate. At the moment as well, the data is limited to just uh, transplants that were conducted in the United States. So the scientists don't know if the same holds true for other countries, where perhaps there are different factors at play. But this opens the door to understanding why some organs last longer than others. And further research could possibly reveal markers that could be tweaked, perhaps using CRISPR or other gene editing tools, to increase the lifespan of organs donated by younger donors, which will then increase the lifespan of the recipient still further. Now, I know that we're oh, about seven minutes into the show already. So some of you might be wondering why Richard hasn't said anything so far. Well, we're trying out a new broadcast model where he offers me nonverbal support. Uh, I know that's not something that's typically done on radio or in podcasts, but it turns out that Richard is a massive 
Kevin Smith and Clark's fan, and that every time the director releases a, a movie featuring his Silent Bob character, Richard celebrates with a Silent Bob day. Um, he becomes Silent Rich. And because Clark's 3 has just been released, uh, I haven't seen it yet, but I will, he's decided that today, this show is his Silent Bob Day. Uh, he's even wearing a long overcoat, shades, and a goofy baseball cap just to reinforce the effect. Uh, this is the bit that I find really hard to believe. Silent Bob Day is actually written into his contract with BFM. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, shall we have a, a, a quick story about contact lenses while we're in the uh, or on the medical mile? Okay, Richard's indicated to me no, but as he can't do anything to stop me, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, this is a story uh, about a truly terrifying video. Uh, yes, I know this is a show that features a silent host and a story about a video. We're really exploring some niches today. Uh, this story is from uh, Futurism. It's a viral video by an ophthalmologist in Palm Beach, California, called Katerina Kartiva. I'll post the link in the show notes. She had a patient in her 70s who came in complaining of blurred vision and pain in her eyes. When Kartiva examined him, she found that her patient had be put, uh, she'd been putting in her daily contact lenses, but sometimes forgetting to take them out. Now, I don't wear lenses, but I do know that that's quite common. People forget to take them out at night, and they try to put uh, a fresh pair in in the morning. But of course, most people notice and simply remove the old lenses before they put in the fresh ones. Now, I have to point out that Richard is watching the video and squirming right now, uh, and quite rightly, it really is a shocker. Uh, everyone I've shared it with has uh, shouted and scolded me. Uh, the video shows a close-up of the patient's eye. Kateva uh, lifts the top lid of the patient's eye and at first finds nothing but uh, some kind of mucus. When she probes further, she finds a whole bunch of lenses stacked on top of each other that have slid up towards the back of the eye. And the video shows as she removes them with what looks like a Q-tip. In all, she removed an incredible 23 contact lenses from her patient's eye. Uh, thankfully, the lady didn't do any permanent damage to her eye or to her vision. But a month or so later, and against Kurtiva's recommendation, the patient is apparently wearing her contact lenses again. So yes, uh, let that be a lesson for you. Watch out for your eyes and they'll watch out for you. Uh, either Richard is making a very obscene gesture at me right now, or we have time to do a, a quick story before the break. Um, yeah, okay, we'll do the bison one, I think. As usual, the really weird stories that I find tend to be on IFL Science. Uh, I guess a lot of you have watched the Ice Age series of movies. In 1979, the frozen remains of a 50,000-year-old bison were found by gold miners in the Alaskan permafrost. It was handed over to researchers and named Blue Babe. And it was an incredibly rare find. It was the only preserved Pleistocene bison. That's not to be confused with Pleistocene bison. Uh, and at first, it was only thought to be around 36,000 years old, 
But more modern dating techniques have reassessed that and re-evaluated it at around 50,000 years old. The incredibly well-preserved carcass is thought to have been killed by a big cat, probably a lion, and its remains rapidly froze before being mummified under the ice. Now, I know there's nothing especially weird about that. Um, It's kind of a cool story, but it's not especially weird. So the question is, really, what would you do if you found a 50,000-year-old bison? Now, Richard is making some kind of eating sign, which either means I have to hurry this up and let people get to their lunch, or that he would probably try and eat it, which is gross. But gross is exactly what the scientists decided to do as well. In April of 1984, a group of them convened at the Alaska home of paleontologist Dale Guthrie, where they dined on a stew made from a small part of the bison. Apparently, this was something that uh, Russian paleontologists were known to do, and they wanted to see how the meat had aged. And apparently, when they thawed Big Blue out, it gave off uh, a very earthy and beefy odor. Uh, And they've reported that the meat of the mummified bison looked a little bit like beef jerky. So, of course, they decided to stew it just in case it wasn't uh, very good so that at least then the taste would be masked by spices and other ingredients. Yeah, okay, Richard is making some very kind of upset stomach signs right now. Uh, Apparently, it it was a bit tough. Uh, 50,000-year-old beef is probably not going to be too tender. So, you know, it was probably what they expected. But the scientists have since claimed that it was delicious and that none of them experienced any gastric-related ill effects. So I guess this is one of those strange things that can happen when you take your work home with you. Uh, I don't think I would have done the same thing because I have always lived my life by a very simple principle. Don't eat the food you find under the fridge. We're going to take a short break. Silent Rich and I will be back with you soon for those AI updates here on BFM 89.9. Behold freedom, Malaysia, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back. You're listening to Matt Splained. It's me and Silent Rich on the show today. Uh, I promised you at the start of the show that we would have plenty of AI today. We've talked about uh, AI-based text-to-speech and text-to-image models a lot recently uh, over at Meta, uh, Facebook. I mean, we all know it's Facebook. But over at Meta, they've been working on a text-to-audio system in association with an Israeli university. The result is a model called AudioGen that can be used to create audio effects, Uh, Something, for example, like a cat meowing in a tree in a garden. So the model looks for the keywords, in this instance, cat meowing garden, and creates a sound file based on those prompts. Now, there's no working demo at the moment, but you can have a look at the white paper on GitHub, where the researchers have shared a variety of sound files. 
Uh, they show some of the untreated files, uh, some examples that use a rival system uh, for text to audio, and then they show the sound at various levels of enhancement. We'll post the link to that in the show notes. The results are really interesting. There are things like a man shouting while a car beeps. Uh, there's a guy talking with another voice in the background with the sound of a mic, uh, motorbike be behind that. So by the time these sound files have had some post-processing work done on them, they're accurate if not exactly realistic. Uh, Richard's making a puzzled face. Um, it's actually a shame that we don't have audio gen today because then I could use that and bypass all this silent rich stuff. Uh, I think he's trying to say, what would this be used for? Um, okay, I, I think that we can all imagine the potential for things like movies and shows and games, um, podcasts, definitely, even for live theatre uh, or at theme parks, for creating all sorts of realistic background effects. Uh, beyond that, you know, it's meta, so you can imagine it being put to all sorts of more consumer-level uses. I can imagine it being used in the company's VR projects and products so that you could, for example, build your house or garden in world and create realistic, real-time effects to order. Uh, but, uh, and this is just conjecture, it would be huge, I think, if they released it for products like Reels and Stories across the social platforms. Meta is in the middle of this kind of existential battle with platforms like TikTok over user acquisition. Younger consumers seem to be less excited about Insta and Facebook than they are about the likes of TikTok. So a product like this could be a real boost. Social video sharing platforms typically allow you to add songs uh, and things like background audio from a library of copyright material and user-generated content. And we see uh, these audio memes emerging as users remix and reuse these clips. But that can get repetitive. You end up being fed all these ticks, tocks, and reels that have the same themes and background sounds. If you had something like AudioGen, text to audio could change that because you could create exactly the sound file that you want for your clips with a simple text prompt. You'd still get things like memes emerging, but it would make it much easier for users to create custom content that reflects their individuality. And when you consider it in conjunction with our next story, it could be one of those game changers that I seem to be mentioning on the show pretty much every week. Now, Richard is making a C-sign at me with his hand, which I'm hoping means copyright and not some gang-related thing. Yeah, okay, that's copyright. So that's the thing. If you use AudioGen, would Meta own the content you create? After all, Meta is the one who's paying for the AI modeling uh, and also paying for processing the content that the user is making. So it comes to that issue of which is more important, the tool or the idea. And this is an issue that's coming up with a lot of the AI-generated content at the moment. Image libraries like Getty and Shutterstock have recently started to remove content generated by AI systems because there's no settled law yet around whether the copyright vests in the user the idea maker, or the creator of the tool used to generate it. 
Even though organizations like OpenAI have made it clear that the copyright vests with the user, there is still sufficient uncertainty that the commercial stock agencies are wary of putting the products on their sites. We are also seeing uh, this debate as well about NFTs that have been generated using uh, this kind of text-to-image to, uh, text software and how those should be treated and valued. But again, I don't want to go into this too deeply today because there's still more AI to cover and because the sleepy face that Richard is currently making at me suggests that it could be boring. Uh, actually, this next one is still... Uh, text to AI with Meta, but combine this with the uh, the previous story about text to audio, and you have the potential at least for uh, an incredibly powerful combination of uh, tools that would be very good user hooks. This is actually a text to video model. Uh, again, there's a, a white paper, but no public beta yet. And at this point, the results that I've seen, they're a little bit grainy and unrealistic. Uh, a horse drinking water is one of the better examples on their demo site. But it really isn't about where the technology is now. Uh, just in the few weeks that I've been playing with Midjourney, uh, a, a text-to-image site, it's progressed immensely. So once things like this get to that public beta stage and they have thousands and thousands of people helping to shape the model, it advances very, very quickly. So in a lot of instances, the meta model uh, is still pretty far short of realistic, um, as are the sound files. But we're not always looking for realistic. You know, I, I go back to that example of social sharing video. If meta was to launch text to AI generation in its apps, I don't know how quickly TikTok or Snap or whatever competitor could create a, a product or a feature that competed with that. At the same time, the company could commercialize higher quality versions of the product for VR development. And again, you know, at some point we'll do a show on the wider direction of Meta and the user-related as well as financial problems that it's faced over the last year or so. But these are genuinely exciting products that I would like to see uh, advance far beyond where they are currently. Okay, uh, apparently I'm taking too much time. So one of the more mysterious Facebook inventions of recent years has been its supposedly brain-reading wrist bracelet. Uh, basically, it's a, a new form of in-world navigation device. Uh, it was debuted, I think, a couple of years ago. Um, uh, yeah, I think stories back in 2021, but it's been sort of known publicly before that. But again, this isn't a meta story. Uh, the science of thought reading or thought anticipating artificial intelligence really is moving very rapidly. So this is another story from The New Scientist. A team at the University of Austin in Texas has developed a machine learning model that can analyze brain activity, and it can work out word sequences that closely resemble the input stimulus from test subjects. So when we look at something or listen to a sound, it creates neural activity. The hard part is getting the machines to understand which external stimulus provokes which brain patterns, because it's something that we're not entirely sure of ourselves. Uh, I'm looking over at Silent Rich, and I'm not sure there's much neural activity going on over there. 
at all. Uh, the team used volunteers to train the model by using an MRI. So the subjects listened to a total of 16 hours of narrated stories. This enabled the model to match brain activity to specific word sequences. The participants were then read a story uh, that the model wasn't trained with, and the model then tried to decode it. Now, while the translation was different for each subject, uh, the words came out in different orders, the machine did get the gist of the story for each subject, although the context was often mangled. So this is somewhere where the model is showing great potential, but it's still got a, a long way to go before it can become a useful tool. Now, Richard is miming something that I think means what could it be used for? Well, ironically, it could be used to help people who have issues with speech. At the moment, it's me who's got the issues with Richard's speech, but people who either don't have or who have lost the ability to communicate with speech uh, could use this to, you know, regain, uh, regain that ability to converse. I'm also wondering if it could be used as a kind of babblefish, uh, a universal translator between languages. Now, of course, there are enormous privacy concerns around machines that can read our thoughts. The Texan team doesn't see any issues with their development because of the amount of training that the machine needs to work with a specific individual. So it's unlikely that it could be done without consent. And there wouldn't be a lot of point in trying. Unfortunately, much like this show. Now, that is us for this week. If you missed any parts of this episode or you want to listen into any other BFM shows where Richard does actually speak, you can find it on your podcast streams or download the BFM app, which is available for Android and Apple devices. If you're a fan of Matt's Blaine, there's a show-related newsletter that you can sign up for. That's at uh, culturepop.substack.com or just go to the Substack website and search for me or Matt's Blaine. It's free. I can't think of a better reason than that. Silent Richard Bradbury has promised to be vocal again by next week. Thanks for streaming in. This is BFM 89.9, The Business Station. listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.